Hello, and welcome to the second brick in the monument my own pretension. We are Connect the Actors, and I am Chris, joined by my two co-hosts, James and Jackson. Uh, this is a conversation movie show where we build an education in movies, one movie at a time. James, Jackson, how are you guys doing? Pretty good. Was not expecting that whole intro of the, what, brick and mortar. That's, I like that. I like that a lot. Bro, I'm a professional. What are you talking about? True. <laughs> I'm doing great, Chris. Uh, I am ready to spout some bad opinions. Oh, <laughs> okay. So here, here at uh, Connect the Actors, we're just doing an intro episode. Here, we want to talk about some of our favorite movies, give a little taste profile, mainly for my two co-hosts here. Um, if you are a listener of Healthy Obsession, then you might be familiar with the three by three format of which we like to uh, do these taste profile things. So essentially, what that means is uh, I have asked James and Jackson to both put together nine movies that they think defines their taste in cinema and arrange them on a three by three grid. Um, the placement may or may not have significance. It's not really important, but I did ask that the movie place in the center be their favorite movie, whether for quality or taste. We don't have a Twitter yet, but when I get one set up, I will post them there. So we're going to start with that. Uh, and I think think uh well i guess i should also explain the premise of the show uh which we're not going to get to until the next episode but the idea behind connect the actors is every week we're going to watch a movie we're going to talk about that movie uh in you know whatever comes to our minds about what's worth discussing for that movie uh it could be something new could be something old could be something that just came out uh whatever we want but the defining thread is that when we finish that movie we're going to pick an actor we really like and then we're going to find another movie with that actor. Then we're going to watch that movie, do it all over again, pick another actor, and then watch another movie with that actor. And in that way, for at least the next 12 episodes or so, I'm thinking for season one, that's what we're going to do. That's connect the actors. So let's jump into the three by three. Jackson, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, uh, m mine is all butt rock the whole way through. Uh... <laughs> so real quick, since I can't post it on the Twitter. Uh, before we get into the discussion, just go through every movie. Tell us all nine of them. Yeah, starting from upper left to go right from there. Uh, I have the Mad Max remake from 2015, but specifically the Black and Chrome edition. I think it adds so much more to the movie. Uh, then, of course, we have Revenge of the Sith. Perfect movie, 10 out of 10, IGN. Um, then we go over to Hereditary. Uh, scary. Feels like a family drama goes supernatural it's wild uh constantine that's where we really kick it up with butt rock it's just it is just keanu reeves going out there sawed off shotgun blowing away demons that that's the movie uh silence of the lambs probably one of my favorite movies probably one of the movies i've seen the most uh then going over to paranormal activity kind of let off a long period of time for me of watching horror movies uh, a Christmas Carol, but this has to be very specific here. We're not we're not talking about Muppets. We're not talking about black and white. We're not talking about Jim Carrey. I am talking about George C. Scott, nineteen eighty two, I believe, and it was a TV made for TV movie. It's the best rendition. Can't get any better. Uh, then we go Book of Eli. We're back to the butt rock. It's just Denzel Washington walking around. He's blind at the end. Spoilers. Uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Is the final one on there? Uh, fantastic movie, great original soundtracks. It it's just fun from beginning to end. All right, James, first impressions. Um, 
man, I wish I would have a little bit more about uh, Sons of the Lambs, but like all the other ones, like I won't say they're. I don't know. Like I'm very lukewarm on a lot of them. Some of them, like Fury Road, like that's a good one. And Scott Pilgrim, I just watched like a month ago for the first time ever, and I absolutely loved it. So solid picks. Um, I'm a little bit curious about the little Book of Eli one because if I remember correctly, that was a very Oh, like it just it there was nothing really for anything in it that one for me. But I'm curious to hear what you say what you have to say about it when it comes to you explaining all these pieces. But yeah, yeah uh, before we started recording, uh, Jackson was explaining that one one night we were going over the three by threes and looking at the Rotten Tomato score on a lot of them, and uh, <laughs> not to not to drag Jackson down <laughs> or anything, but Book of Eli was surprisingly low for me. It. It's one of those movies that, uh, especially throughout, you know, the 2010s, it was always on FX. Uh, and then afterwards, I'm not sure that Mila Kunis has actually been in a good movie. Uh, she is the female protagonist. Uh, you know, protagonist might be a strong word for it. She comes in about halfway through the movie. But it's just a fun movie. It's a wild dystopia. And... Uh, Going into spoilers here, skip forward 30 seconds. It's just a guy, a blind guy trying to bring a Braille Bible to, like, this last repository. It, that's all it is. It, it's just so much fun. Well, uh, I felt a little bit more than that. It was like, it, the apocalypse has happened, and now um, our, our blind man has got to come in and bring God back to the world, and everybody's out to, like, stop him from doing so, I thought. James, I said this was on FX. You might be reading. <laughs> um, it, it is. It, it's probably the high-minded notion behind it. Uh, the on-paper one is he is just doing his damnedest uh, to take this book over to this last uh, repository of humanity for like, and books are currency anymore. Uh, is from what I remember. Uh, but this hit super hard, came out when I was playing Fallout 3. It it felt right on so many levels. Still fun to watch. So I've got some questions uh, about almost every movie on this 3x3. <laughs> uh, I think of the ones listed here, Mad Max Fury Road is my favorite of what you have here. But I am curious why you have the black and chrome over the original. The original is fantastic. I love the Technicolor of it and the hyper-realized, uh, but the black and chrome was so wild. Uh, I've, I've seen that version probably twice as many times as I've seen the original. Um, just being... It carries more weight. You are not as like dra- drawn to the background as much as just staying in the moment with the characters. Uh, for whatever reason... You know, the black and white art style really handles the movie well. So I have a question for both of you guys real quick. Um, are, you the, are you the type of people to rewatch movies constantly? Or are you like a one and then maybe once you forget the movie, you watch it again? It's a, it, it would take a particular movie. There are some movies that I will rewatch constantly. Like I think Into the Spider-Verse, I watched like eight times as soon as I was able to get it digitally. And Fury Road, I have seen a number of times, but most movies will be a one and done situation. The 
major ones for me are Constantine and Book of Eli. I've watched on FX so many times just having cable growing up. Uh, Christmas Carol is one that we watch as a family every single Christmas so much that my mom falls asleep and she'll start sleep talking the words with the movie. It's it's ad nauseum. Probably two to three times <laughs> a, a, a Christmas season we'll watch that movie. Um, because you guys were saying like you watched these some of these films multiple times with Jackson was, and I'm just kind of like, I. I don't know. For me, like most movies, I only get enjoyment out of them once because it's the whole ride of going through the movie and trying to figure things out and like having anything be new and surprising. Once that's kind of gone, like I feel, depending on the movie, there are some movies that keep my attention all the way through even while I'm rewatching it, where it might be new stuff for me to find out. But I feel like most movies, I really lose interest and desire to watch again, unless I'm like sharing it with a friend for the first time. Sure. And actually, I want to follow that thread. So, Jackson, you've got two horror movies on here. Yeah. Uh, have you ever watched any of those more than one time? And do you think there's still something worth getting out of them after the first viewing? Uh, if the first two horror are hereditary and paranormal activity, then I don't know. There's much more to gain from paranormal activity. It was just such a fun movie. And the beginning of the franchise was great. Uh, hereditary is a movie I think every single person should see. Um, but Silence of the Lambs, I probably watch that once every two to three years. And that's another one of those horror, but it's a little bit more on the thriller side, and there are notes throughout the movie that's like, on more rewatches, you pick up more things that like, I didn't even think to think about that. Okay, yeah, I, I was specifically referring to Paranormal Activity and Hereditary, um, which, I mean, Silence of the Lambs does have horror elements, but I would... I would personally slot it more in the crime thriller category. Yeah, it it definitely sits more there, but uh, I I know it <laughs> uh, definitely for some people has strong horror vibes. Now the the feeling I'm getting from a lot of movies on this three by three here is a lot of them feel like nostalgia picks, or at least something that has been with you for a long time. Uh, such as, like you explained, for A Christmas Carol or Book of Eli growing up watching on FX. Uh, and I imagine there's probably a similar feeling in Revenge of the Sith, which, you know, I think no one could probably argue that it's not the best movie in the prequel trilogy, um, <laughs> even though, like, it's still a pretty middling movie. But it's fun. Uh, tell me about that. What do, you, what do you like about Episode 3? Episode 3. Uh, just feels like the most, uh, and recently last year, I went back and I watched through all, uh, I'll say the original six, because I stopped at nine, not wanting to continue, uh, but three was just so much fun the whole way through, I felt had the best scoring of any of the Star Wars, uh, which I know, uh, this will get a lot of hate, uh, for episode five fans, but, uh, you know. The, there is a lot of nostalgia there, but uh, it just felt like the most versatile movie. Hot take. I I agree with you wholeheartedly. Honestly, Revenge of Sith almost made my 3x3, but after seeing it already on yours, I was like, mm, I feel like that's just enough to nudge it off because it's like a super <laughs> close round because um, just everything about Revenge of the Sith and like the whole lore of like Star Wars, it felt like the prequel was 
completely made for that movie. Like all the whole series and the Clone Wars and everything was just like meant for Revenge of the Sith to happen and have such an impact that it did. Yeah, it's wild that Episode One gets as much hate as, uh, even though Episode Two exists. <laughs> I agree. I completely agree. Episode Two is fucking boring and stupid. Awful. You hate sand. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh. The uh, the two movies you haven't really talked about much here. Uh, we've got Constantine and Scott Pilgrim. I feel like I can guess why Constantine is on here, but tell me about it. <laughs> the same thing, FX, but rock the whole way through. I'm going to keep saying that, even though it's probably lost any meeting if it ever had anything. Uh, Do you like Keanu? Do you think he's good in this movie? You know what? You know what? Okay, so here's a, a bad guilty pleasure of mine is I think I like Keanu as an actor. Um I mm. I remember going to the theaters and watching, oh God, the day the Earth stood still or something like that, where he's like a giant alien that comes, but he's like, oh, Keanu. I uh, it, it's a wild pull, but <laughs> it's from about the same time because I think that movie came out oh five. I didn't watch Scott Pilgrim until probably twenty fifteen, and it is so much fun the whole way through it captures so much of the backgrounds that i was interested in and just so i'm gonna keep saying fun because uh it's one of those things that i don't like slow songs i don't like slow paced movies or shows i like all action all the time and that's probably why my uh probably the average score for my three by three is about you know 60 um but the that one the lambs has really pulled it up from book of eli yeah if i didn't have silence of the lambs hereditary mad max uh it would be hard but yeah so scott pilgrim the fantastic soundtrack uh action i've never uh seen the comics uh that's a way to say it other than read um but (laughs) you know i i enjoyed the story the whole way through and and it had a good, like, moral to it. Like, have self-respect. Cheat on your girlfriend. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, Edgar Wright's a fantastic director. Edgar Wright is one of my favorite directors, and that is a through line for most of his movies, that they, they are really fast-paced, there's a lot of cuts, and uh, he's just a fun director. He has a style that you can, you can feel even a similarity in style between something like Scott Pilgrim to especially something like Baby Driver. But then even I feel if you go back to Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz, there is still that feeling there that he brings to his movies. So it's it's a really good pick. Scott Pilgrim is really good. All right. Yeah, no, I'm going to have to watch more Edgar Wright movies. It's just been, uh, I have bad opinions on crappy movies. Uh, I don't watch a lot of good movies. <laughs> well, if you haven't seen Baby Driver, I cannot recommend that enough. I will have to check it out. In fact, Baby Driver almost made my three by three. It did not spoilers, but it was almost there. Oh, it was like it was like a top three runner up. Very fun movie. <laughs> One of Kevin Spacey's last good roles before he got canceled. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to James. Uh, let's do the same thing. Just give me the rundown, and then we'll ask some questions. Okay, um, yeah, so I'll go straight into the rundown and I'll give my little, like, backstory. So, yeah, Django Unchained, 
uh, Avengers Endgame, which I'm kind of including the idea of that's um, Infinity War and Endgame, because it's part one, part two kind of deal. Then you got Pulp Fiction, Detective Pikachu, Inception as my centerpiece. Um, oh, God. Uh, your name? Yeah. Hangover, or The Hangover, um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and then Spirit Away. Sans so, really almost forgot the name of a movie on his own 3 by 3 Most impactful one of things. <laughs> oh, I don't know how to really explain it. I just... <laughs> we, I feel like whenever I write reviews on, like, your name, it was always the Japanese um, way of saying it. So I've always... Kimi no like, Noah. Yeah. And that's that's where I was about to say that. I was like, nope, not butchering that. And so, <laughs> all right. So the little backstory with me would come into this is before Chris came and proposed me to be on part of this part podcast, I really wasn't a big movie like watcher. Like I was a fan of movies, but I never went out of my way to really watch movies other than going out to see a movie and cinema. For me, before this. It was just a big time commitment where we're like coming to sit down on the couch and like wanting to put on a movie on Netflix. I'm just like, do I really want to spend two hours on a movie and or spend like four hours watching three minute meme videos on YouTube? And so um, with this proposal by Chris, I finally made the jump to like kind of hop off social media and just like start sitting down and just watching movies. And so I kind of just made a list of all the movies that. I can remember seeing and thought were really good, and I think I had a list of like thirty movies. And just every single day after work, I would just sit down on the couch and just put a movie on, and I just made little notes. And that's how I came to this list of like kind of like being like somewhat a rounded kind of view. Uh, kind of going into as we go through. So, um, with that being said, any questions on the list alone before I dive into it? Well, I want to say the the idea that you don't watch a lot of movies, and I mean this in the nicest way possible, it does show on the three by three. If only because every single movie you have on here is a blockbuster. Like, I think every single one of these movies, except for maybe Pulp Fiction, since it existed in the interim before blockbusters were really a thing, I I I would I would guess that every one of these movies came out in the summer. Or at the very least, grossed very, very high. And, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Because, like I said, this isn't supposed to be, like, what you think are the best movies of all time. It's just supposed to be what you really like. So there's no wrong answers here. But your list definitely has a vibe of somebody that doesn't watch a lot of movies, like you said. So it's good as a representation. I'm not trying to put you down for it. No, 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 take it. And it's just, yeah, that's actually, I didn't even think about that. Because all these movies come from me seeing them in theaters first. And usually over the summer. Uh, I think your name's... I know, I saw your name to yours too. Um, yeah, alright. So, uh, yeah. So we have starting off with Django Unchained, which I really don't know where to even begin with this one. This one was just like overall um, quarantine. Uh, hi, Chris, help me out here. Quarantine? <laughs> right off the bat. Quarantine? <laughs> I don't know where you're going, and I have no I was idea. trying to say this right there's the... He's um, just trying to say Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> it's on the picture. Uh, 
I, I, I will advise you to go look up the Twitter to see how how on the picture it is. <laughs> All right. Anyways, just this movie was just overall a blood and gore like fest, but like I don't know, in like a fun way, as weird as that sounds. Like I'm not really into like horror movies at all, and I absolutely hate blood and gore. But the way um, uh, Tarantino does it um, in all those movies is just something to behold. And this one was just like it really added to like I want to say the crescendo of the movie. That was not where I probably butchered. But anyways, it was just like this whole plot, very slow movie at first, of just like the slave being liberated and just like finding his way through the outlaws of the old Wild West. Or was it? No, it wasn't the old Wild West. It was just, was this during the Civil War? Is this the Wild Wild West? It, It would be around that time. Oh, um, but yeah. <clears throat> I'm sure is... there's something in the movie that gives a specific year, but you got the vibe, right? Yeah. And so it was just this huge thing of like super racist, um, like Ku Klux Klan members and like just overall just horrible, horrible um, acts of inhumane acts against like slaves and all that stuff that all come together, um, make you want to root super hard for Django to just go out and absolutely like destroy all these people and he does in terrific fashion and just all the characters um in this movie just I don't know just the cast and everything about them were was just spot on and they all had great chemistry and just I don't know there's even like the one of my the scenes that stick out the most in this movie is um uh DiCaprio um going and like giving a speech about how he what was it he was getting upset uh at the table at dinner and he slams his hand down in anger as part as like the script but he breaks a glass on the table and it cuts his hand wide open to where he's bleeding profusely he just kept on going with it and that, ever since i learned that fact when re-watching this film it's absolutely horrifying to see him just bleed out and play along with it. And then at one point, he literally smears that blood all over the girl's face. And it's just like, that horror on her face was completely genuine. And oh, just so, like, scenes like that really stand out to me and really stick with me. Yeah, DiCaprio's an animal. That doesn't seem like social distancing. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I see here that you have two Tarantino films. You've got Django Unchained and Pulp Fiction. And yes. I think uh, that people have different feelings on Django, but for me, those are two of his best films. Uh, I, I think agree. personally, Django is probably my favorite Tarantino film of all time. Um, but I'm curious, you know, much like Wright, Tarantino is an auteur director in his own right. Like he's got specific things about his style you can pick out and say this is a Tarantino movie. The easiest one being the amount of blood or curse words that he throws into the uh, movie. But I think it's it's even more nuanced than that. Can I cut uh-huh. in? I haven't seen Django Unchained. Uh does he have a prolonged foot shot in Django? <sighs> he probably uh-huh. does, but I don't remember a specific one now. Okay, I was gonna but say I mean, that's, he's got it, right? that's the other red flag I have for Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> for sure. Um, so I'm just, I'm curious, uh, is there a, like, like just one, if you could name one 
piece of Tarantino style that is present in both Django and Pulp Fiction? What do you think it is? Um, narrative. Like, just, it's like a different style of narrative with most movies. It's kind of like you're trying to really, like, convey the plot and just, like, really, like, anything that is spoken has deep meaning to the plot and to push the plot. I feel like with his movies, there are times where it's more about just making a believable world. They will have these um, discussions and sidebars that just kind of make pull you in and make them feel believable and like you get them. And I feel like Pulp Fiction definitely had a lot of that. And Django was actually probably one of the few movies of his that had a lot less. But still, there were scenes in it where it was kind of like world building in a sense. Not really plot driving, but world building. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting that your answer was narrative, given that Pulp Fiction is basically a series of short films and Django is a more traditional movie. But you're you're focusing on the dialogue aspect of the narrative. Yes. Okay. Uh, and so, so then if we go in between those two movies, we have Endgame and Infinity War, which are the blockbustery movies of all blockbusterdom. And are very, very different in style than Tarantino, for sure. Yes. So, honestly, I almost was going to put this uh, as a centerpiece. But the only reason why I absolutely say Endgame is my favorite movie of all time is because of the build-up of the characters through all the other movies. I watched it again really critically of just watching part one and part two. And just being like, without any other context, what do you really have? And I still found it to be a great movie. But it was just one of those things where a lot of, like, the deaths, the, the interactions, you really had to watch all the other movies in MCU to really get the full effect of it. Can I ask, did you sit down in one day to watch both part one and part two? I did. And the funnier, the funniest part about that was when I did that, I guess I had a window cracked or something because my German neighbors heard it. And that evening, I literally heard them play back-to-back both movies across the street. I was like, huh, <laughs> I didn't realize I was playing that loud. But that's awesome. Just the action. Like, it's just kind of like how Jackson was saying, like, how he likes, like, all, like, the fun action stuff. Like, I feel like Infinity War was just a fun, like, action movie all the way through that had emotional spots if you were invested into the characters. But even if you weren't, the action scenes did the comic book series, like the source material, so much justice, in my opinion. Of just, I don't know, they really brought the characters to life in like believable ways and made them fought in non. Oh, there's there's a lot of superhero movies in the past that felt really cartoony with how they will fight and stuff like that, and it really pulls you out of it. But just the way the fight scenes were done in these two movies, part one, part two just felt really gritty and real and like you felt the punches and you were wanting to stand up and cheer for them and holy shit um just going to spoilers like real quick if you want to cut ahead 30 seconds when captain mary grabbed that fucking hammer holy fucking shit i think that might have been one of the biggest moments of movie history if not fucking life because oh my god <laughs> just the build-up to that was absolutely perfect yeah, I one of my favorite things is to go on YouTube and watch uh shots from inside theaters during key moments like that in Endgame and just be able to relive the audience popping off at those moments. Uh things like that make Endgame, Endgame specifically, impossible for me to rate or say whether or not it's a good movie because I I can't ever remember 
any of the writing or the narrative structure <laughs> or anything about that movie because the entire movie is simply a vibe that I live inside of constantly. Where like I I can't tell if it's a good movie. I genuinely wouldn't be able to tell you if it's a good movie because it was an event. It was yes. the buildup of 10 years and it was a celebration of that fact. Like the final fight scene is so weird and disjointed uh, that like it, it's it's a celebration of the last 10 years of Marvel and they kind of stopped caring about making a good movie and that kind of just makes it better because it, it just becomes pure fun at that point. I, I love the way you put that as an event because that's exactly what it was. It was just... <sighs> It was just, it was fun. Like, I don't know, after for many years of having so much hype build up for like a finale or some type of ending and always have them come short, Endgame was the like one of the first things that surpassed my insurpassable amount of hype. And I didn't think that was possible. But watching it in theaters, I came out of that movie just going like, I literally, I think it was two weeks. It took me two weeks to recover from the ending of that movie, uh, just like how everything went down. So I'm going to, I'm going to guide the conversation a little bit over to your bottom right. You've got two anime movies here, which mm -hmm. are distinctly from like different eras of anime cinema. Yes. And, and, and both of them titans of their era of anime cinema. In fact, I think we actually just crossed an anniversary of Spirited Away, like just in the last couple days. Um, and, uh, Spirited Away and Your Name are both, uh, like, I think, I think they sit in the top three of highest grossing anime movies of all time and are widely renowned as masterpieces in their own right. So tell me oh, about that. Agreed. Um, so starting off with like Spirited Away, I watched Spirited Away way back in the day. I think it was when I, it was done by Disney and came out of theaters and I just remember watching it and it was, like, I guess I went into it thinking it was going to be, like, a Disney movie in a way. And what I got was this new world. Like, just this immersive world that pulled me in and just took me on this ride. And not like a roller coaster, but just a coasting ride that sped up and got exciting at times. But then at times it just got really mellow and chill. And kind of like how you were saying, like, Endgame was a vibe for you. Spirit of the Way was a vibe for me. Like, Kind of like in a way like Pulp Fiction was of like this very kind of like it pulls you into this world and like takes you on to these little like side stories. I feel like Spirit Away, if I remember correctly, had these little like sidebars and side stories of these different characters of like who they were and all this stuff. And yeah, it was just not, I can, I can talk about it for like hours. I'll try to cut it down. Of just Spirit Away just being not so much a like great movie to me more just like an amazing experience that i have major nostalgia for that i don't think really any other movies really come close to giving me that same kind of feeling and then when it comes to your name your name was the i think the first movie um that was subbed on that watching theaters and it was like the first like anime movie i've ever watched in theaters and honestly i was a bit kind of like i won't say nervous but something close to it of like going to see a sub movie because I like even though I'm a huge fan of like sub anime when it comes to movies I'm very big on like actually listening to the way people talk and the way they voice act and stuff like that in their own language and like watching what's going on screen versus like anime subs like with most anime 
it's kind of like almost like stills if you look closely enough to where like you don't really have to constantly be like checking out all over the screen to get everything that's going on and to where I feel like I can read the subtitles and not feel lost versus some movies like I started watching some like German former movies the other day um there was times where I would be looking at the subtitles and I feel like I would miss something on screen or the subtitles would go too quickly and I would just miss them but yeah with all that being said um it was an anime uh anime movie through and through and it just the level of quality and detail and art in this movie was just insane to me i i don't think i've ever really watched any other anime movies up to this point so to watch a huge like studio i'm guessing it's a huge studio honestly i don't know the much of the people who made your name but just everything was so fluid so vivid so detailed it just felt like there's a lot of heart in this movie and the story itself was I don't know, pretty adorable and just overall like a fun like cutesy movie that still like has some has some things that i really could um, get behind jackson you you don't watch anime uh i only watch jojo's bizarre adventure <laughs> you you should you should watch more anime uh and i've seen uh, I want to eat your pancreas in theaters with you. I think that was the name of it. Did you go to that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I I remember seeing that with Hayden. Yeah, I cried during that. But, it was wild. Oh, okay. Yeah. Also, good movie. Very very similar vibes to your name. Um, has James sold you in watching either of these movies? Honestly, I might check out your name. Uh, hearing uh, the big part about me is I do watch dubbed. Uh, JoJo's I guess is the only <laughs> thing to say about that. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I watched dubbed because I am not great at paying attention to the words that are said to me, or I try to multi multitask while I'm watching stuff, especially TV shows. So, say uh, seeing that uh, there is enough time to read it and still take in the scene, uh, pretty cool. So actually, I might check this out after that recommendation. That was really good to hear, James. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, they're both very good movies. So <clears throat> I wanna I wanna pound through these next two pretty okay. quickly so we can move on. I can do that. You've good. got you've got The Hangover, which is possibly one of the last great comedies, and Detective Pikachu, which is possibly one of the first great video game movies. Well, um, yeah, that's all I was gonna say about those two. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, so you, I I yeah. haven't actually seen Detective Pikachu. Is it good? Is it actually good, or do you feel like it's just Pokemon nostalgia? Okay, so I'm glad you asked. That's a great like segue. So the first time watching it in theaters, I was let down because it didn't feel Pokemon enough. It didn't feel like it was enough Pokemon fan service for me that I was expecting. That I felt kind of let down. Watching the second time through and not watching as a Pokemon movie, but just as a movie, Ryan Reynolds as Pikachu fucking made this movie. Like, I cannot That's stress that. That's to me. I still don't like that casting. Oh my god. Oh my. Like, oh. <laughs> like if, if you're even remotely a fan of Deadpool for Ryan Reynolds acting in that, you'll love Ryan Reynolds' Detective Pikachu. Just because the way it all plays out is just... The perfect amount of cuteness with sarcasm, and I really don't know how else to put it other than it's it's just good. It just works. It's something I, I still I think I was with you honestly when I first heard that Ryan Reynolds was playing Pikachu. I was like, what the hell? Like, what are they? What are they smoking up there? But then you watch it, and you're just like, this works too well. 
my opinion might change if I watch the movie, but I genuinely believe outside of the meme, given the, the context of the movie, I, I actually think Danny DeVito would have been a great casting choice. <laughs> I, I'm firmly behind the DeVito train. Is that without <laughs> VFX on him? Just paint him yellow and put him in there? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, basically exactly what you said that like cue me up is that this was the first like really good video game movie. And they did one thing I will note before moving on is that what I think what made this movie so good was that they didn't take like the original like Ash and Pikachu storyline or Aang like video game storyline. They literally just made up this storyline of the Tech of Pikachu. And made this kind of like city and this like this world inside the Pokemon that worked insanely well for it being a live action. Because I feel like if they would have made it comparing it to a video game or Ash and Pikachu, like the anime, it would have flopped tremendously. And it's because it's so fresh, it works so well. Okay, uh, so we're we're gonna skip talking about Inception for now, okay. but give me some thoughts on Into the Spider Verse, which I'll go ahead and say uh, is also on my three by three. All right, Into the Spider Verse. Oh man, like this is this is like right behind Endgame and the contention between um, Inception and Spider Verse into like Serapis because this movie was just its absolute masterpiece in my opinion. You had Great voice acting, great music, absolutely mind-blowingly fantastic artwork, and just art design. And just plot was good, too. And the ending, the scene, the fight scenes were fun and full of action. This is exactly what I would want from a superhero movie. But in a very art... How do I want to put it? It just, there's an art style put into this of kind of like a comic book but also kind of like a interesting 15 frames per second, but also like not like smooth 60 frames per second at some points that worked really well. That it's really hard for me to put into words of why it's such a visual masterpiece. Like the whole movie is just eye candy to me. And yeah, it's has everything I absolutely love in an animation film. Okay, so <clears throat> once we get through my three by three, uh, I will cut the episode away because I want to have... Uh, a one-on-one conversation with both of you about your centerpiece movie. So that being for Jackson, we'll talk about Silence of the Lambs and for James, we will talk about Inception. Uh, that'll be at the end of the episode, but for now we're going to skip both of those center movies. Uh, and I, uh, for the sake of content, I'll run down my three by three now, if you guys are good. I'm good. The only thing I will say real quick is the hangover, just exactly what Chris said. Probably one of the last great comedies. That whole movie still holds to this day. There's so many lines I take from it up to this day. It's just a classic in my opinion. All right. So going down my list from top left to bottom right, we've got The Truman Show, Her, Toy Story 3, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Big Lebowski in the center, then Clerks, Akira, Cabin in the Woods, and The Room. So thoughts, first impressions? I will say I watch um three, four, yeah, like about 70s movies, I believe. And Cam in the Woods, I just have a quick little funny side story. I watched that on a date, thinking it was going to be a horror movie. Man, that twisted in really threw it through a loop. 
But yeah, no, nah, um, otherwise, good picks, and I really wish I was seeing Truman Show her and the Big Lebowski before going into this. But yeah, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about them. Uh, Chris, so now I'm going to circle back to the premise of the three by threes is okay. impactful movies is uh-huh. what it was. <laughs> Not necessarily quality. <laughs> uh-huh, um, uh-huh. I think you know where I'm going with this is The Room. Uh, <laughs> I was surprised to see that make it, but uh, I, I know that you and I have a little bit more experience with The Room than some others might. Yeah, so uh, actually with The Room, um, I didn't include it on here, and I wouldn't put it on the 3x3, three three, but uh, watching The Disaster Artist kind of completes the experience of watching The Room for me, where, like you said, um, we grew up, essentially, in in the middle of the rise of The Room in the, like, uh, cult cinema zeitgeist, where we, we've seen The Room multiple times. I think I introduced it to our friend group, mm-hmm. uh, and Adult Swim introduced it to me, um, because if you're not aware... Uh, Adult Swim for several April Fools would play the room constantly for their entire block on April 1st. And so, you know, some kids just stumbling on Cartoon Network in the middle of the night watching this awful fucking movie. Uh, and from there, it it rose to infamy in uh, midnight screenings and the such, similar to Rocky Horror. Um, and so it, it was just kind of a touchstone of even our friendship where we as a group would go to those midnight screenings and watch the room and we would interact with the audience uh we even dressed up as suits and we were the guys that ran down and threw the football around during the appropriate scene (laughs) uh and then to have that whole thing culminate with like i i think a genuinely very good movie and an art house piece in its own right with the disaster artist uh was like this is gonna sound so fucking dumb and pretentious but that's that's gonna be the theme of this entire show um watching the disaster artist in theaters was almost a spiritual experience where it felt like the end of a journey. Like, watching The Disaster Artist was a vindication of the time that I spent watching The Room, and it made the whole thing feel more complete, if that makes sense. Question. I was just going to ask, being somebody who hasn't seen, like, I know The Room, but I never actually sat down and watched it, or The Disaster Artist, but I know enough about it, what would you recommend watching first? Oh, definitely watch the room first. Okay. Um, the the disaster artist in particular is about the making of the room, so there's a lot of key things that you won't understand. Uh, and it it almost felt like a camp end to the room fever. It felt like, you know, everyone they get met in college is like, "Have you seen the room?" If you had a bad movie night, <laughs> uh, and it. Personally, for me, it almost feels like it's gone away since seeing <laughs> the disaster artist of like, I'm finally free of this beast. Uh, I'd be <laughs> kind of curious to see how uh, the disaster artist has changed your viewing habits of the room. Uh, well, yeah, I definitely haven't ever watched the room again. But also <laughs> part of it is it's a genuinely bad movie. And it's the kind of thing that I could only really stomach in a group setting like you know, once theaters really start opening back up, if the the art cinema near us plays it again in a midnight showing, I might go to that. But I will never willingly choose to watch The Room alone. Because <laughs> it's, it's just actually bad. Like, like Rocky Horror as a midnight movie, 
you know, at least there's there's some heart. There's some genuineness there. There are things you can like about it, whether or not it's Tim Curry and Fishnets or any of the songs. But uh, the room is pretty irredeemable. But yet, bad enough to make your three by three. Yes, because the experience of watching the room is important. Gotcha. Now I'm following. To flip flop sides, uh, to go to another cult classic is the Truman Show on yours. Uh, how how many times have you seen the Truman Show? Uh, probably only a handful. I would say maybe four times tops. Okay. Uh, if only because the Truman Show is uh, a viscerally emotional experience for me. Uh, I actually watched that movie for the first time in seventh grade in English class. Okay. Our English teacher played it for us, uh, you know, just as as teachers do to get us to shut the fuck up. Um, and The Truman Show was one of the first movies that wasn't like a brand new release that really spoke to me, that I really latched onto because the ideas presented in The Truman Show are very interesting and I feel like are applicable in a lot of ways to people of our generation. Uh, and man, Jim Carrey, when he wants to go hard, he can really go hard. Like the Truman show or, um, oh God, what's it called? Um, something, something of a spotless mind. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. Cut it. <laughs> uh, those, those two movies are very different than like an Ace Ventura movie or the mask, but Carrey's got range. I'd be, uh, yeah. I'd be interested. Have you seen I and I haven't either. Uh Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. There you go. Okay. And uh Sorry, go ahead. This will probably need to be something I should have looked up already. When he played Andy uh oh god, what was his name? Uh No, god, god. <laughs> Jim Carrey. Yeah, actually Jim Carrey on an Andy Warhol movie might be pretty interesting. Are you talking about the Andy Kaufman. Like, yeah, that's what it was. He kind of super went hard enough to, like, I think his uh, ex-wife or widow of Andy Kaufman was like, I just want to talk to you more uh, because he embodied it so hard. Uh, wow. Have you... Come on. I haven't seen so that. Good. I've only heard the behind the scenes of it, but... <laughs> what What movie was that? What was it called? Let me see here. Because yeah, I, I don't think I've ever heard of that. Because I remember reading about that movie, too, about how when Jim Carrey was, like, trying to get into method acting for, to play that character, he got to the point where he lost his mind. Like, he got too deep. Yeah, it's called The Man on the Moon, uh, produced by Danny DeVito. Huh, okay. Uh, yeah, I will have to check that out. Then maybe it'll show up again in our program. <laughs> maybe, we'll see. We'll see if we can connect the actors to it haha uh james it breaks my heart that uh the the three movies on my three by three you haven't seen are the three movies that i really really wish you would see <laughs> um but it checks out because uh, pretty much everything else is decently mainstream uh depending on your opinions on clerks i guess um so her is uh i don't want to get too deep on that because it's just really sad but, you know, it's a movie. Do you know anything about her? Um, I believe I've never seen a trailer in theaters for it. Uh, it's a guy who makes an AI girlfriend. And well, he doesn't up. make the AI. It, it's pretty much literally 
like an Apple-esque company rolls out a new version of their smartphone assistant. But this new version, like, has enough artificial intelligence to grow into a true artificial intelligence. Uh, and, and so he does essentially start dating his phone companion. Uh, and it's, it's just sci-fi enough, and it's a very quiet, very intimate movie that it's, uh, it, it's something that feels very comfy, even if the premise to the right person is kind of sad and laughable. Uh, I don't think it is, uh, but it might be sad and laughable that I don't. Uh, the soundtrack was done by Arcade Fire, and I actually own that soundtrack on vinyl right now. And it's, it's a beautiful soundtrack, and it's a very, it's a movie to ponder, and I wish more people would see it, because I think there's a lot there to unpack that I don't get to talk about often with people. It's on the list. And her, Jackson, have you ever seen her? No, and I know that we were talking about uh, possibly queuing that up for the next episode. Did we settle on what we were going to go into the next episode with? Yeah, and it's not that. Okay. Um, but no, I, I've always heard great things about it. Uh, uh, award nominee uh, definitely was something I knew it for. But uh, which awards, I can't say because I don't know awards. <laughs> um, but no, it seems like an interesting premise, uh, especially after having however many amazon devices in my home uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh but no so to transition you over to a different one you brought up clerks now i notice it's not clerks 2 not wow, however many other clerks jay and silent bob strike back is this the one that got you to fall in love with it or uh yeah it's definitely not clerks 2 get out of here with that garbage <laughs> it's in color uh so, so actually, similar to James's Tarantino picks, um, I, I do generally very much like Tarantino, and a lot of what I like about Tarantino is specifically the dialogue. Um, James focused on how it builds the world around it, um, but I simply love the way Tarantino writes his characters, um, the way they speak and the specific words that they use, the cadence that he gets his actors to use. Uh, and I feel very similarly about Kevin Smith, um, especially in Clerks, because Clerks is a wildly different movie than everything else he's put together. Um, and especially if you compare it to Clerks 2, where Clerks 2 feels like an actual movie, it has an actual narrative, and it, it's, it's getting a thing across, it's just trying to entertain you, it's, 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 a, it's a comedy. That's pretty much all there is to it. I don't like Clerks 2. I don't think it's a very funny movie, and I think it's a massive step down from the original, because Clerks, um, you know, like you pointed out, it's a black and white movie, and it's not because it's old. It's a conscious choice on the part of Kevin Smith. And so much of the movie is simply characters having conversations, because the whole movie is a day in the life of being a convenience store clerk, whether or not that's dealing with shitty customers or walking away from your job to play some street hockey, or you find out someone you kind of knew died, so you ditch work to go to their funeral. Every single, like, it's a movie built of tableaus and skits where, you know, it was made on a very cheap budget. They didn't have a narrative. They didn't have sets. They just shot characters sitting in spaces they had available to them, 
and the way the characters speak and the way you get to know these characters is the driving force of the movie. And so Clerks specifically instilled that love of dialogue within me. I love the way people talk, and I love when people can talk interestingly. Creative communication is very much a passion of mine, and that's built inside of movies like Clerks. And then he shits all over that in Clerks 2. <laughs> <laughs> I love Kevin Smith, but he's very hit or miss. I thought I saw Clerks, but apparently I didn't, because I don't remember it being black and white. And then, yeah, you definitely didn't see Clerks. I avoided seeing it for so long because it was black and white, which is a very interesting diametric opposition to the black and chrome edition. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, h- how often do you think he hits versus misses if you give me a ratio? I, I really only know surface <sighs> level Kevin Smith. For me, I would say 50% hit. For other people, it might be as low as 30%. Do you think he's gotten less funny as he's gotten skinnier? <laughs> Do we have an uh, Oprah? No, I don't think so. Because uh, I think actually the uh, the Jane Silent Bob reboot, I actually kind of like that movie, even if it was a bit ham-fisted in its messaging. Okay. Um, a lot of people don't like Tusk, and I get it, but I actually really like Tusk for pretty much the reason other people don't. So that's kind of where the big discrepancy in the hit or miss might be for me. Okay. Um, transitioning one square up over to Toy Story 3. Now, you and I grow up at a time where, uh, early childhood was Toy Story 1 and 2. Pretty close back to back. Uh, Mm -hmm. does this have a lot of nostalgia behind it? Yeah, I think Toy Story 3 is actually a very inspiring movie. If only because, you know, when it was announced, I was like, what the fuck? I don't want Toy Story 3. Nobody wants Toy Story 3. Nobody asked for this. It's like, it's been like 10 years since the last one came out. And then it turned out to be actually really good, which doesn't happen often. Threes are very rarely good movies, or at the very least can surpass either of the other movies. I'm looking at you, Shrek. Yeah, I was going to say, just sequels in general, general, never, like, in my opinion, surpass their original. There's very few exceptions. In a trilogy, I always feel like the center movie is the best because that's when yeah. all the best scenes get to happen. Absolutely. Because, so? you know, even like, you know, with the Shrek comparison, Shrek 2 is like one of the most perfect animated movies of all time. Shrek 2 is way better than it has any right to be. Like, not even memeing. It's a very good movie. Should we go ahead and, and I just think Photoshop a... over Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and put Shrek 2 in or? <laughs> no, God, no. Uh, but I think there, there's a legitimate argument <clears throat> for somebody to make about saying Toy Story 2 is a better movie than Toy Story 3. I think that's a fair argument to make. I don't agree with it, but I think it'd be a fair argument. I agree with Shrek 2 being better than Shrek 1. You don't agree with that? No, I think... I You're an know. animal. Maybe just the nostalgia alone of Shrek 1 is really carrying it for me, but like <laughs> Shrek 1 was just a childhood masterpiece for me. You're you're an animal. You don't you don't know good movies. You're, you don't like podcast. You're an idiot. Again, I haven't seen Shrek in years, so I toss that one to the curb. Moving on. <laughs> uh, and then, in my opinion, Toy Story Four was kind of a step down, which like still not bad, but uh, uh, probably my least favorite of the entire it series. Should have happened, in my opinion. Also a debate to be had, but not a relevant one to this conversation, unfortunately. How do you feel about, I think Disney, uh, these Disney Pixar movies kind of went through a period of 
hey, there's a 12-year gap. Let's put out a sequel. Of There was Incredibles 2, there was Toy Story 3, Monsters University, and uh, Finding Dory, uh, all kind of back-to-back. Do you, do you feel like this is probably one of the better true sequels to those? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, you know, I haven't seen Finding Dory, so I can't speak particularly to that one. But a lot of people were very lukewarm on Monsters University. I actually really liked Monsters University. Um, but I can I can at least see that it's not the best movie. It's probably in the bottom half of Pixar's repertoire. Toy Story 3 certainly, I want to say was probably... I, I think it was their first attempt at a, a far-removed sequel and set the bar really high. There was uh, Lion King <clears throat> one and a half, uh, so with, let's, not, let's not go okay, well, saying anything well, better talking, than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking for Pixar movies specifically. Um, but yeah, with, with the far-removed sequel thing, I think it's very important to take into account the change in tone and direction they went with those movies where Pixar had the self-awareness to say, okay, so if we're doing a sequel to a movie this old, our audience is going to be very different. And so they kind of age it up, and we're in the middle of a transition of Pixar not making movies for kids, and not even making movies for kids that adults can still enjoy, but damn near just making adult animation with more mature themes that a kid is not going to pick up on upon the first viewing. And Toy Story 3 was kind of the herald of this change that we're seeing now in movies like Coco or Soul, you know? Mm -hmm. Did you cry during the incinerator scene? Oh, my God. Who did it? That's like a lizard for a Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Okay, then I'll just run through these other ones real quick. Uh, James already talked about Spider-Verse a little bit. Um, Spider-Verse is, like, my number two movie. It's probably the greatest animated movie of all time. Um, in every regard, music, animation, writing, every single thing about it is a 10 out of 10. There's not a question about it. There's no qualms. There's no negotiating. It's a 10 out of 10 movie. If you haven't seen Into the Spider-Verse, even if you don't like Spider-Man, if you don't like Marvel, fucking watch it. Could have been better if there was Smash Mouth. <laughs> no. Shrek no. 2. No, it wouldn't have. <laughs> uh, Akira, much like James's Miyazaki pick on Spirited Away, it is an anime classic, and it's definitely on here more for the style of the movie than anything else. Um, the orchestration and the cyberpunk aesthetic uh, are things that influenced me a whole bunch, even if the movie itself is a little disjointed and confusing since it was an adaptation of an incomplete manga that was already way too long to be a movie. Totally get if it's not something for other people, but goddamn do I love Akira. And it's also got like a little bit of body horror, which is my favorite version of horror. And speaking of horror, Cabin in the Woods, uh, very funny movie. I like me some Joss Whedon, and I love send-ups of genre movies, where Cabin in the Woods starts as a normal horror, it plays into all the tropes, it's got tropey characters and setups, but then... You know, spoilers for the movie, I I implore you to skip the rest of this podcast if you haven't seen Cabin in the Woods. But uh, you get to the facility, and it's like an in-universe breakdown of horror tropes. That's the most interesting shit in the world to me. Uh, Cabin in the Woods is is a movie that I I did have on repeat for a while, because outside of just being genuinely funny, it was uh, was interesting to watch, to see the breakdown of that genre, because I love me some horror, too. Uh, and then, since we're not going to do a big discussion on The Big Lebowski, 
I don't have a whole lot to say about it other than it is my favorite movie. I love that it's a movie about basically fucking nothing. Almost nothing happens in that movie. I love Jeff Bridges. And again, very, very strong dialogue, incredibly quotable movie, and instilled inside of me a love for Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, and Steve Buscemi. I love all those guys. Uh, do either of you have any strong feelings about Big Lebowski having watched it? Uh, John Goodman's performance is one of the funniest things in that movie to me. Uh, him just being a psychopath vet uh, is just one of the funniest things in the middle of a bowling league. <laughs> so yeah, that'll do it for the three by threes. That is the majority of our first episode, Connect the Actors. Next time we are going to watch our first movie, which I believe we all decided was going to be Jojo Rabbit, oh, uh, yes. a, a Taika Waititi instant classic, in my opinion. <clears throat> so over the next week, we will all sit down and rewatch that movie because I think we've all seen it before. Um, and then after that, we'll try to focus on some stuff we haven't seen and we'll take it from there. So I hope you'll join us for these next 12 or so episodes and we're going to have a good time. But now I will transition you to my one on one talk with Jackson, where we are going to have a more in-depth discussion about the Anthony Hopkins classic Silence of the Lambs. See you there. So what what is it what what is it about this movie that what what makes it your favorite movie? I think it is the perfect suspense thriller movie. Uh it's paced kind of beautifully. Uh and each act almost has a separate mystery to it. So do you normally go for suspense thrillers? Uh it's definitely my guilty pleasure is a bad Netflix horror especially. Uh you know, just real trash um but yeah I, I you know that's an easy way to get my get my thrill is oh well, that's bad for a thriller um you know if if there's anything to get your blood pumping i'm a sucker for it action movies thrillers anything okay because i actually do not watch a lot of uh mystery suspense thrillers uh in in fact in a lot of ways, I would say I resent them, uh, if only for a tangential connection to uh, crime procedural shows like Law & Order, CSI. Uh, I can't fucking stand those shows. So I, I probably unfairly lump a bunch of movies in with that. Uh, normally, if I'm going to watch a suspense thriller movie, it'll be something based in history. Um, sir, it, this isn't exactly thriller, but something along the lines of all the King's men or spotlight, things like that. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I did also very much like silence of the lambs. Obviously it's a fantastic movie. Nobody's disputing that. Um, uh, but, uh, just, uh, you know, I think it's interesting from my perspective, it's not the kind of movie that I would have pegged as something that's your favorite. It, it just is one of those kind of. Uh, I don't really know how to say it, but, uh, you know, it's shocking, uh, some of the visuals, and it's just so interesting how they get to the bottom of it, and this movie in particular actually kicked off a long love of the books that the movie's adapted from for me, and I'm not someone who reads. Okay, so the, the other movies, then, because I don't know anything about them, or even really Hannibal as a character outside of this, but do the other, like, 
So let's start the book that this movie is based on specifically. Is it written pretty close to the movie or is Hannibal more of a main character? No. So like all of the books, the TV shows, he's not, he's an antagonist for sure, but he's not the central is the first book is Red Dragon in the series. And I don't even know that Hannibal Lecter's in it. And it's just the cop who can't end up catches, uh, Hannibal Lecter is is the one who's actually uh, the main character. And the point of view is always with the FBI uh, forensics team. And that's kind of what I like, is I don't want to know what the villain's doing. I don't want to always, you know, be omniscient. I, I want to uh, be able to get some surprise at the end. Okay, that's interesting. So so the, the series in its entirety doesn't really focus on Hannibal Lecter that much at all, is what you're saying? Um, there are later books, uh, the, the, there's one called Hannibal and Hannibal Rising, uh, but the, I can't remember if the book that Silence of the Lambs is adapted from is called Silence of the Lambs, uh, but there is a long-standing, like, rapport with the main FBI guy and Jack Crawford being the director and Hannibal Lecter. Uh, I'd actually highly recommend if you like that, you might like the Hannibal TV show that was on NBC. Uh, But it is quite a bit procedural. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I think, you know, the big takeaway for a lot of people from this movie, and the reason I'm focusing on it is, uh, Anthony Hopkins' performance as Hannibal Lecter and the character of Hannibal Lecter. Um, he has all of the most memorable lines and as a character has been wildly influential in cinema since then. Uh, so I, I, I'm curious, is that, like, is his performance a particular favorite part of yours? Does it stand out to you, or do you view it as more of a holistic thing? Um, definitely his performance is one of the driving features of it. I think after his performance, because it is just so, like, it, it immediately gets under your skin. It's just, you walk past all these guys, the guy throwing cum isn't in a plexiglass room, but this guy is, <laughs> uh, there must be something up. And then you get you you get little tidbits of what he's done. You don't get his rap sheet on the start out. You know that he just killed a nurse. <laughs> uh, and then I think it's shot in a very kind of wonderful way of you don't... You're always in the point of view of Clarice. Almost always, unless you're with Buffalo Bill at the time. It It comes away as a very immersible experience for me even having seen it 10 times, let's say. Yeah, and I I think a lot of that does have to do with uh, the uh, charisma is probably not the right word, but Anthony Hopkins as an acting force draws you in, especially to a character like Hannibal Lecter. Like, there, there is a charisma there, and the performance is enrapturing. And I think for myself, n- not particularly liking this style of movie, if if it wasn't Anthony Hopkins and if the movie wasn't written as well as it was during the moments he's on screen, mm-hmm. I don't think I would have liked it as much as I did. Wait, that's interesting for you to say is there is actually a 
I'm not sure if it's uh, an actual prequel, but it's called Red Dragon. It is it is a lot more of a true adaptation of the first book of the movie. Uh, Anthony Hopkins is not in it. Uh, I don't think it's an adaptation in the same, you know, family of movies, but it did come out in like 88. It is weird and also has 80s style in it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it. if this did not have Anthony Hopkins, I'm not sure who it could have had. If the TV show that spun off of this character concept from the books didn't have, you know, Mads Mikkelsen, I don't know who they could have had is to make it uh, appealing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it should be noted that, uh, you know, at least if we're talking Oscars, Anthony Hopkins did win an Academy Award for Best Actor for this role, and he would not win another Academy Award until controversially this year for his role in The Father. Really? Uh, and and are both very, very different kinds of roles and definitely speaks to his range as an actor. Uh, that even for, like, Hannibal Lecter as a character, he's supposed to be a therapist and he is a psychopath. And these these kinds of things typically come with an amount of charm and charisma. And looking at Anthony Hopkins, I don't immediately see it. But he brings it, you know? Yeah, and it is almost like a, well, wait, do they have, you know, what what is this guy actually capable of the whole time? And it's it's strange that you almost do want to, like, okay, let's see what he's talking about here, even though every single person close to him has warned me, don't see what he's talking about here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so what what are some other parts of the movie that you really enjoyed? Like, what keeps bringing you back? I think the portrayal of just a, you know, there's, there's the good. He's Clary's starling. She, she's, by the book, she is catching the bad guy. She is doing what she needs to do. Then there's the gray, is what I'm going to call it for this movie. Other movies, it's not gray. Uh, is Hannibal Lecter. He is helping the FBI, but he's serving his own needs. It is, while he is a murderer, he... You know, he follows the rules most of the time, but he he does whatever he needs to do to accomplish what he needs to do. And then there's the black is, you know, there's just straight up murderer Buffalo Bill. Nothing but just trying to torture girls and steal their skin. <laughs> and just that uh, trichotomy, I guess. It's not a dichotomy. I don't know what the word is. Uh, of, hey... Here's this murderer who had you pegged from square one, who is like, I mean, I'll help you a little bit. You're the guys who put me in here. It, you know, just that, like, playing of how characters interact is kind of fun. And the thing that really does get me to come back is there's always something. I think about, what, eight years ago, there was something online about, like, oh, you know when he says, uh, I ate his liver with fava beans and a nice Chianti. Um not even trying to emulate Anthony Hopkins, uh, is that's an homage to it. He's not taking his, like, pills that are make him, supposed to make him more docile. He's, like, slipping them away because, like, fava beans and Chianti in particular would, like, fuck with your medicine super hard. And, like, there's just small things like that and, like, every other line that I'm like, oh, shit, no, that that's going to matter here in about five minutes, huh? 
Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't even pick up on that. Uh, and you know, I so I I think I had seen this movie before, a while ago, and I didn't pay that much attention to it then because I think I was in high school. We might have actually watched it together, in fact. Um, but I revisited it before we did the recording mm-hmm. for this episode, uh, and I definitely didn't remember and did not expect the horror elements that were present in the movie. Like, I, I, I definitely figured, like, it would just be a crime suspense movie. But because of the nature of the way Buffalo Bill handles his victims, there was some grotesque, horrifying imagery uh, that I think, was this an R-rated movie? I'm not actually sure. I, I kind of stopped looking at that kind of thing after a while, you know? Uh, now, I'm gonna look this up live. Uh, and... This might have been before the R rating, and that might be a total fabrication. Okay, it is R for violence and profanity, which is interesting because they kind of put out a dude dick. <laughs> it's not quite there, but dropping dong in 91 would have been a huge problem. <laughs> yeah, and interesting that you would bring up the possibility that this was before an R rating because this movie did come out in 91. And it could just be that since it was on the cusp of the 90s, it feels like an older movie. Like, it, it to me, it still has 80s energy. Do you feel oh, that? Oh, absolutely. And if, and honestly, if when I first saw this, you told me it was came out in 85, I'd believe you. I had no reason not to, because I'd be a child. But, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's one of those movies that just has an atmosphere to it everyone's using a landline there's pagers there's it's just got a lot of stereotypical 70s 80s early 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 90s stuff yeah and it was around this time like when blockbusters started really being a thing that movies started to change as an art form and movies got faster uh we got a lot more cuts dialogue got a lot wittier and snappier and this movie exists kind of before that in a different realm of movie making. And I think because of the slower pacing uh, that is obviously purposeful and works to the movie's advantage, uh, a lot of what drives the movie is the dialogue. And like we already talked about uh, in the 3x3 discussion, that's something that I really, really enjoy about any movie. And I think it's a phenomenally written movie in that regard. Yeah, no, it is absolutely... Uh, it's. The director did a wonderful job. The uh, adapter, I don't know what to say. The screenwriter, I guess, uh, did a wonderful job. It it really does bring out kind of the best and most horrifying aspects of both Buffalo Bill, the killer in this movie, and Hannibal Lecter, the paragon? (laughs) The killer paragon in this movie? (laughs) (laughs) And then also because it is... uh... At this point, a 30-year-old movie, which uh, is wild to think about for a movie that came out in the 90s. For as uh, influential as the movie is, as well as how parodied the movie has been, it's always interesting to go back and see this kind of thing for effectively the first time and see the bones of other things firsthand. Like... The imagery of Hannibal in his face mask as he's being taken to his new holding cell or almost anything he says. You have seen it a thousand times in other things, but to see it in its primordial form 
is interesting. It's kind of like watching Darth Vader. It's like watching The Princess Bride. I didn't watch that until college. I knew all of the memes from it, but I didn't know anything about it. So that was like, I uh, that's probably my closest comparison. It, but you know, it it's like watching Darth Vader come out and say, "I am your father," and then it, it, how many times have you seen that on every single show? <laughs> right, it, it's the kind of thing where like I never feel like I need to watch The Sixth Sense or any of the Terminator movies or Alien. Because I've seen it redone and talked about in so many other ways that it feels like I won't get anything out of seeing the original. Which is probably false. I don't walk around saying that as a directive of movie watching. uh, But it just creates a certain kind of atmosphere when you see this kind of thing for the first time. Yeah. We will have to visit some of those, I'm sure. Is Terminator probably has a lot of star power that came out of it. And, you know, Alien... Who wasn't an alien and aliens, but alien in particular, mm-hmm. it was interesting to hear on your list because that it, that is such a different movie from its sequel is alien is a horror movie and aliens is the action movie. For sure. Uh, and I know that's not a new take. It's been said to death. I picked that up somewhere, but it, it, there are some like iterative designs of like oh yeah what if they punched the shit out of the alien and they got in a exosuit <laughs> but you know <laughs> it, it is one of those that this is the hallmark because this is the gold label gold tier of this kind of movie and you you're not going to get better so you might as well play it pay homage right exactly uh so i think that'll do it for our discussion here jackson thank you for joining me thank you for having me And uh, we will transition now to my similar conversation with James, where we will dive in on Inception. All right, so James, like we said in the initial episode recording, uh, your 3x3 is indicative of a man that does not really watch a whole lot of movies, which is fine because that's kind of the point of the podcast here is we're we're trying to make ourselves watch more movies. Everything you had just about was a blockbuster in some way, uh, including your center movie, which is, uh, for some, the seminal Christopher Nolan work, Inception. Oh, yeah, I'm one of those people. So so you think, uh, I, for me, I would say top three Nolan in no particular order is Inception, Interstellar, and The Dark Knight. What do you think about that? I... Agree with you. Have you seen um what's that new that time movie that came out last year? Uh, Tenet? Tenet. I have not yes. seen Tenet. Oh, okay. Because I was about to say I would bump off Dark Knight and put in Tenet. I've got uh, an ongoing uh, playful hate relationship with Christopher Nolan because <laughs> he he caught a lot of flack earlier last year I think for uh, the way he chooses to mix audio in his in his movies, uh, especially movies like Interstellar and uh inception where sometimes you just can't understand what the actors are saying because like the the bass is off or he's putting more emphasis on other parts of the audio and in an interview he said well i just don't understand why some people are so conservative with their audio mixing and man that's that's like one of the most fucking pretentious things i've ever heard (laughs) yeah I, i agree with you on that one i think it's more of an issue in interstellar when you've got like you know 
this is going to be weird to say for a movie like Inception, but there's a lot more going on in Interstellar than Inception. Mm-hmm. At least oh, as yeah. far as big things that need a lot of audio that overshadow the actors. Yeah. No, I man, it's been forever since I've seen Inception or um, Interstellar. But yeah, I do remember like there's parts of the movie, especially when like near like the black hole scene that like the music in the background was just like overwhelmingly loud, especially in theaters. If you watched it in IMAX, oh my God, like the whole theater was like blasting your ears. I was just like, wow, <laughs> yeah. like, what the fuck's going on? And that's not to say I don't like Christopher Nolan, because I really do. I think generally he makes very good movies and, uh. I, I don't think I've seen a movie of his that I don't like, although I've heard some lukewarm takes on Tenet, but uh, but Inception. So Inception is your favorite movie of all time then? Yes, and I um, I think it was actually one of the first. So um, quick little like sidebar, I, the, in order to make this 3x3, three three, I kind of think I said this earlier, um, I rewatched like a lot of the movies that say were my favorites. Watch, I'm not sure if it was the fact that I was watching them for the second time or watching them more from an analytical, like, which one is subjectively, like, the best, in my opinion. But, like, re-watching a lot of my movies through this, like, sec- like my this second take really made me realize a lot of the movies I previously thought were amazing weren't great at all. And I think one of the more surprising ones was... Watching The Dark Knight, like, I still like it in general, but, like, I feel like it did not really hold up to, like, today's, like, standards. I feel like what really made Dark Knight good was the fact that it was a superhero movie before superhero movies were really a thing. And with that, comparing it to, like, the levels of Endgame, of how everything, and much production has gotten put into it, it just, it felt, like, cheaper i guess it's like a kind of pretentious way to call it but like it felt that way if that makes sense but sure going through this again watching all these other movies they weren't really coming up to par where i used i thought about them like the nostalgia effect was happening till i got to inception inception 100 percent in my opinion holds up to today's like level of cinema in my eyes because the effects and everything he did um, to make this movie, I feel like you would think it's like a modern day movie. Like it didn't seem old or dated, like the way he did the shots, the way he like um, made the music, the way that people talk, just everything about it just felt like timeless. Um, and just the way, I don't know, like I feel like over time, like the way plot kind of gets delivered and like the timing of everything and like i feel like it's a fair thing to say that the movies of today have are now a bit longer in compared to to, um, movies of the past but that could be also just the fact that i'm also a very mainstream watcher and it seems like the mainstream people are getting more okay and comfortable with sitting through a two hour plus movie versus the 90 minute format of the past but even still, with the pacing of how long this movie was, it still just, it feels like, even though this is, like, there's parts of Inception that is great the first time through of figuring out what's going on, it's still overall a fun movie to rewatch and, like, see what parts that you can point out going through. Because it's one of those movies where, first time you go through, it's like a exciting little ride of figuring out what's going on. 
But with every single time you rewatch it again, I feel like there's always more to discover. Sure, and I'll tell you uh, something that I love in particular about Inception, uh, and something that I think gets lost in the discourse actually, because you know a lot of people they want they 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 like to joke about Inception of like oh the dream within a dream or the blah and like mm-hmm. it's hard to follow right. Uh, and I totally get that from a mainstream perspective, but what I particularly love about Inception is that it's it's almost a parody, right? Mm-hmm. Like my my so some of my favorite content. Uh, if you're familiar with, for instance, Dan Harmon, and in particular his work on Community, almost every single episode of Community is a send up, a spoof, a redirection, a reinvention of a sitcom trope or a movie trope or a genre that already exists that Harmon adapts and pokes fun at for the sake of his show community. And in that same way, Inception is that for heist movies because it is a heist movie, like very much the genre. It's got all the staples. You've got, you know, the uh you got to get the crew together you got to make the plan you have to have the point when the plan falls apart somebody double crosses the other it's got all the points but it has a unique enough twist that you then need to take all of those tropes and readapt it to your own personal canon so you have to think about if you're in this non-real dream world you can't just simply have oh, we're going to get caught, be the point that the plan falls apart. Because it has to have inherently different stakes when you are not existing in reality. And so I love being able to examine the genre and see the ways that Nolan plays with that. Yes. And I think the kind of piggyback off that, the whole original idea is that we have all these other, like, other kind of heist movies and just other sci-fi movies in general of, like, we have ones that deal with space, stuff that deals with like time travel, um, stuff that involves like these weird double crosses across like different like classes of society and all this stuff that's feel like is constantly done over and over time and time again. I feel like the what makes a session really special is the dream twist that it's not about the money, it's about um what what did they, what did they call it? It was something like mental espionage, where the whole point is to incept the idea of a merger into a competitor's company, and that on the surface is like, I don't know. I find that to be interesting. I love literally creative idea, but like, the movie isn't really about that. Like, it's about getting that heist done and completed, but it quickly like diverts onto something bigger of uh we're talking spoilers right yeah yeah of basically leo um the cabernet's character um moving on from basically making his wife commit suicide and that's like the big twist of like the twist in the twist is that um his wife is trying to like kill him in all these dreams and absolutely screwing everything up and you're like what the hell is going on and you just you later find out that he has trapped her deep within his own subconscious because of his major guilt for incepting into her the idea that the life they live isn't real. And in order to get back to their real life, they have to kill themselves. And it goes too far to where even when they get back to real life, she still has the idea that she needs to kill herself to the point where she finally does kill herself. And now 
he has to live with that. And he, he struggles with that guilt, that depression, and everything for the longest time. Until finally, this movie, like in the movie, he is forced to come with that face-to-face, literally with her in his dream, to let it go and move on. Yeah, I would not say it is a nuanced take on the idea of trauma, but it is an interesting addition to the narrative to turn it into a story about trauma and guilt, especially when you are digging into the subconscious. Um, it's it's a little bit of a flare of melodrama, but it works. It, 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 it really does. I like the movie. It's a very good movie. Yeah. And, like, to even go further, though, like, we were just talking about, like, how this is, like, a mental, like, heist. That's first the original idea. Then you have what that, like, that, like, melodrama, like, twist that I feel like fits in well. And then just overall, you have, like, another, like, arc between two other characters of, like, the, their target that they're trying to make the merge happen with. Um, basically come to terms with his father. But I think that was kind of like a weird pseudo side plot. No, no, that was the target that they're trying to manipulate. My apologies. So... It was, like, this young guy whose dad was going to die. He ends up having this, like, moment where he finally realizes that um, his dad doesn't hate him in the dream. And I think that's the actual, like, exception idea. And then there is some other thing with other side characters that they basically come, like, to terms with their own melodrama. But you have all that going on simultaneously in dream upon dream of dream where all these rules are set and followed of like time dilation way gravity works and all this stuff along with really unique ways of using those rules to enact insanely cool fight scenes there's one where in one of the dreams where the van is like rocking back and forth so they're kind of like hitting the sidewalls and all this stuff to the point where the van is flipping over now they're doing this fight all around this hotel hallway that is like insanely choreographed. It's never been done before, period, of a fight happening on all four walls. Then it goes from that to the van falling off a bridge while they're still fighting to where the fight is now in zero gravity. And the reason why it looks so good is because they ended up doing this very, very complicated setup where they actually make it to where they can fight like that with like a bunch of ropes and stuff and like a actual moving set. Yeah, and it was it's all just, practical. Yeah. And yeah, because of how well done that practical set was made, it holds up to this day and is truly in what my eyes timeless. Yeah, Christopher Nolan is about the closest I think you can be to being an auteur director while still very much being a mainstream director. Like, I, I cannot put Christopher Nolan in the same company as a man like Tarantino or Kurosawa, but he's got a vision, and you can pick out his style. And he, he certainly puts a lot of care into his movies, even if sometimes I think I miss, if I think it's misguided. Uh, for instance, you know, in Interstellar, they uh, had a visual recreation of a black hole before we had visual shots of a black hole and it turned out to be incredibly accurate to what we had seen in the movie uh, i don't know the full details behind that story i don't know what research went into it but it's pretty amazing that a director like nolan 
can go so deeply into the science and the thought of how to present his ideas and have them be verified like that. Yeah, and not just that, but the way he presents them is the most entertaining and fun way ever. Because, like, you can make uh, the idea of a dream within a dream sound really boring on paper. Like, it's just a one extra layer in, like, time dilation. But to go a step further and, like, not just, like, tell, like, oh, like, time's running out. Actually have, like, fight scenes that played into it and, like, the mechanics of having to wake somebody up in a free fall. That's where, like, it becomes super creative and really entertaining to watch. And that's, again, just why I absolutely love this movie. So, yeah, I think uh, that will do it for our conversation here. And that's going to be the end of this first episode. Um, I, uh, I said... At the end of the initial recording, we're doing three by threes. The first movie we are doing next week is going to be Jojo Rabbit. And uh, we will begin our plot line through the movies from there. So come back to us next week. James, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me.